32 counties. United by people. My name is Ina. My name is Andrea. And this is United, United Ireland. Ireland. Every week on United Ireland, we go under the hood of issues in Ireland, beyond the headlines, bringing you smart people who know what they're talking about. Thank you so much to our new Patreon supporters and to the OGs and the latecomers and the soon arrivals. Uh, if you want to keep this podcast going, patreon.com forward slash United Ireland. It costs just three euros a month. You get other bonus apps such as our weekly Sunday Soothe to help you from stop losing your mind. And it also acts as a therapy what session. What was our thing Andrea? we came up with on the Sunday Soothe the other day? Where our main apps are for the mind. The Sunday Soothe is for the heart. Okay, cool. I don't remember saying Oh, <laughs> this is about facts. The soothe is about feelings. Ah, uh, that's what it was. Was it that? Yeah. Um, that sounds like I'm on uh, some kind of, I don't know, um, conservative bro telling people to to park every aspect of their humanity. Facts um, don't have feelings, Una. Um, but uh, if you want to support us and Jordan Peterson, no, uh, <laughs> go to patreon.com forward slash United Ireland, three euro a month. We hugely appreciate it. And um, you get Sunday Soothe. We've got more bylines coming up, more 32 Qs, including our little 32 questions one. road trip this weekend. Andrea, do you want to tell people in London town where we have loads of listeners what okay, they can expect? So this is what I've packed. I'm going to bring <laughs> two dresses, some makeup, maybe like a green dress. Uh, we are going live in London. Um, it is on March 5th, which is Saturday. Uh, tickets are from the London Irish Centre. Go to their website for tickets. I think there's some left. There's loads of other people doing loads of gorgeous stuff like songs and words and stuff yeah and we're doing our 32 questions with uh, Sabina Higgins so come on down to London Town but the on this is right the, this this <laughs> week we're asking the question how did Putin get this far obviously there's been so much um, talk and rolling insane disturbing news uh, about this war that's ongoing um, you may remember last year we spoke to the brilliant journalist uh, Natalia Antalova uh, of Coda Story um, at the time we were talking about the kind of weird airline hijacking kind of thing that happened not a hijacking but a, bringing down an airline uh, in a particular way uh, with regards to Belarus and that Ryanair flight and we were talking about her analysis uh, on the Belarusian regime which she's very knowledgeable about she has written a really great piece this week for CNN about the various moments that led up to um, uh, this invasion and uh, the now collective global will to stop Putin and how that actually could have been uh, uh, much more effective earlier on. And so she's going to give us her th her analysis on, on Russian encroachment and so on. Uh, so definitely stick around for that. She, she's really brilliant. But first, we are going to go to the State of the Nation. As we talk, Leinster House is just, you know, a hive of activity, gossip, uh, rumours and heaves and struggles uh, in and around Alan Kelly's Labour leadership, which seems to have hit the skids. We are not... Can we speculate? Oh, we can speculate as much as we want. <laughs> uh, pretty, much the here. pretty much the foundation of both this podcast and perhaps our careers. <laughs> um, there are names in the hat. Uh, should Alan Kelly stand down, which uh, seems that's going to happen uh, this evening, everyone from Ivana Bacic to uh, Duncan Smith. Um, we don't know yet who it will be, but uh, we will be talking about it on next week's podcast and we hope to then bring you an interview with whoever the leader is as soon as we can as well. Who would you like it to be? Oh, well, I don't think it's a matter of personal preference. I mean, I think it's 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 interesting. How, how do you get a leader who fits the moment? Um, Labour have obviously continued to kind of struggle in the polls, despite the fact that Alan Kelly is perceived to be doing quite a good job uh, against expectations, actually. You know, the well-earned um, nickname AK-47 and his uh, rather boisterous leadership style, shall we say, has not really manifested in the public sphere, nor in the doll. He's been, you know, he's okay. He, he may occasionally be quite, um, you know, 
boisterous and outspoken or whatever. But none of the blowing a gasket vibes um, that people kind of expected. But clearly, perhaps that hasn't been the case within the party themselves with people kind of mm. said to be a bit over his style of leadership. And so then who do you get to fit? How for this? Like, uh, I would imagine gradually and then no, very like, quickly. What, what happens? Just someone like who gets to say, we don't want you as our leader. Get out. Well, there would have to be a formal process of of kind of uh, in, in inside the party of uh, uh perhaps a vote of no confidence or him just simply stepping down and taking instruction from people's desires. And then the process around who would actually succeed him would begin. Could someone have been going around to each of the people in the party going, Hey, do you want Alan out? Yeah. Sign this. Um, like maybe, <laughs> but I think what's going to be interesting is 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 where does Labour position itself now? Who do they see themselves as? Are they essentially going to go? Look, we're probably not going to get any uh, votes from kind of essentially working class people uh, because Sinn Fein have that sewn up. So we're going to go for something else. We're going to try and shave off the ex Finnegalers uh, and the. Uh, some of the green vote and some of the some maybe some of the potential sock dem vote, although they seem to be struggling in a way to kind of expand in terms of getting uh, candidates and things like that. Or do they go? Actually, we're going to have a completely new voice, totally different person who who can potentially get votes outside of uh, the pale, um, maybe even outside or outside of Dublin. And and who 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 is that? What is Labour? Um, what are they going to? going for um, and, and it'll be interesting to see if that person and that direction is somebody like Ivana Bacic or whether it's somebody like Duncan Smith or whether it's a wild card perhaps like Rebecca Moynihan or you know who who could that be um, and it really is about who speaks to the party outside of the party which is a weird thing because Labour has this it's often inability to actually see outside of its own bubble in a way um, and may think that a particular person that they desire may not actually be a massive vote getter uh, in terms of, of what the public sees and thinks. So re- very interesting and unexpected, I think. A lot, I think it's taken a lot of people by surprise. Usually... Leadership. That person creeping around with their list must have been really quiet. Was it you, Andrea? <laughs> well. <laughs> um, what else has been going on this week? Um, so there was a lot of a heave-ho uh, last week over the two Johnnies and their car sticker crisis. Um, however, they are the new recent graduates of the new 2FM rehabilitation program, which is strangely not available to female presenters. The shade. Uh, yes, the two Johnnies after their them being taken off air after a few days into their new gig will now be back on air uh, next week, I believe. And actually, that doesn't... Or like, the week after. That doesn't mean like the female presenters in the past have done anything wrong. No. On the contrary, they have been very good and very successful and have a great following and et cetera, et cetera. The mind boggles. Um, but yeah, let's cle- buzz, let's buzz. <laughs> clearly 2FM think that this is the way forward. Uh, I don't know about that. Um, speaking of 2FM, uh, you will probably be aware uh, that Owen McDermott, uh, who formerly presented a show on the station, put a statement on his Twitter. You can check his account with regards to um, allegations that were made against him. Um, and also there's news that he is suing Twitter as a result of that. So you can check out his legal statement uh, on his um, Twitter account. This story, like just when you think people can't get a grip, they continue to loosen that grip uh, with the news that... Um, Nuns who ran Magdalene Laundries still haven't contributed to um, redress. So this is like, there's meant to be 32 million euros, uh, or there has been 32.8 million paid to the state in the redress scheme that was created December 2013. And the Irish Times reported that um, all four religious congregations involved in running um, 10 Magdalene Laundries, uh, that's a doc on RTE on uh, Wednesday night talking about that, including the Religious Sisters of Charity, Sisters of Mercy, Sisters of Our Lady of Charity and 
uh, Good Shepherd sisters have, quote, declined to make a financial contribution to the Magdalene Laundry's restorative justice scheme, uh, which one would imagine should be the exact thing that they're doing. But uh, what can you say about that? Um, I just zero don't, zero I just accountability. The world. I just don't understand the world. It's a strange old place right now. Okay, um, let's talk about the things that happened before what we're seeing happen so horrifically in Ukraine right now. Europe is consumed by war right now as Russia continues its invasion of Ukraine. Uh, It's a strange and frightening time. Um, I think everyone will agree. Unfortunately, it's not a novel one when it comes to Putin's aggression against neighbouring countries. Um, The Georgia-based Natalia Antilava, the editor-in-chief of the journalism outlet CODA, uh, this week wrote an excellent piece for CNN about the brutal events that preceded this invasion uh, and were effectively greeted with the kind of appeasement uh, that has led us to this point. Um, There's an awful lot to unpack in in her piece, but we thought we'd have her on the podcast again to just discuss the context for people who may not have been paying attention uh, as much as, you know, Europe now is, I suppose. Um, Natalia, uh, thanks so much for for coming on the podcast again. Uh, How are you feeling, first of all? Thanks for having me. Uh, How am I feeling? I'm feeling like I'm in a bad dream that we're not going to be waking up from for a long time to come. That's probably the best description of it. Your piece for CNN this week um, begins with the kind of uh, uh, wake up retrospective wake up call that this situation did not start this year. Um, and you refer to this anecdote about uh, a friend texting you around, remember the red button. Can you bring us back to to what that means and also further back again to 2008 uh, with what happened uh, with Georgia Sure. I think in many ways that red button is the best uh, illustration of the difference of the of perception of this war uh, here and, you know, east of Ukraine and sort of in Eastern Europe and, and east of Ukraine as well in that part, in the in the whole region. Um, uh, I knew immediately what my friend meant when she said, remember the red button, because in the region, everybody remembers the red button. Um, it was in 2009, in early 2009, when just after a few months after the invasion of Georgia, uh, Hillary Clinton, who was then the newly um, uh, appointed Secretary of State in Barack Obama administration, she met with Lavrov and she presented him with um, a, a red button that said reset on it. And that was like this symbolic gift with which the United States wanted to reset the relationship with uh, Moscow. And uh, I remember at the time, most of the media really um, sort of focused on the fact that Americans managed to misspell reset in Russian on the button and made Lavrov laugh. Um, And I also remember just watching it with it sort of felt like the whole region kind of gasped um, for air uh, when it happened, because the feeling there was the reason Lavrov was laughing is because Russia had just been allowed to get away with murder. And um, that's a really important thing to remember about this war is that it did not start in 2022. It did not start in 2014. It started a decade and a half ago when Russia invaded Georgia and then got away with it. And since then, it managed to get away with so many other murders. I mean, there is no other way of calling it, you know, from Crimea to MH17, the Boeing that was shut down over the skies of Ukraine to Aleppo, to the conflict in the, another conflict in the Caucasus in Nagorno-Karabakh, to Salisbury poisoning, to Navalny's poisoning, and to killings that you probably haven't heard of in Places like Berlin, you know, again and again and again over this, you know, 10 and a half years, um, Russia has managed to get away with murder. So when you have that context, they slightly self-congratulate, I don't know if I can say that word, so slightly self, uh, those, you know, the self-congratulatory, no, congratulatory, yeah, congratulatory, 
I can't, I literally can't say. <laughs> the, the, when you, when you know the con, when you know this context, this, um, you know, slightly triumphal self-indulging narrative of celebrating the Western unity um, looks very different uh, from uh, from this point of view, you know, because all you want to know is, well, why, why did this come to this? Like, why did it have to come to this? It didn't. Like, all the warning signs were there, you know, all the... Um, we, we had been warned again and again and again and told, and it didn't have to, to come to this level of destruction, to this level of military action, and to, frankly, to this level of sanctions either. It could have all been dealt uh, very differently if the West had just accepted that uh, all this time Russia was at war with the West. Um, are the the Berlin correspondent of the Irish Times today has a piece titled, you know, a hundred billion pennies drop in uh, Berlin, you know, around this kind of, um, I suppose, wake up calls are only relevant when people are listening um, with regards to how they're now deciding to massively increase their defence budget and all that kind of stuff. And yet we're still dealing with this, um, you know, kind of, slumber awakening in in Western Europe, in in Northern Europe, uh, with regards to what what has been happening on your doorstep and throughout um, um, the the region with with regards to Russian aggression. In 2008, um, for people who don't actually know, what happened in Georgia? What happened in Georgia in 2008 was very similar to what happened in Ukraine now. It was the scale is incomparable, of course, but it was very much a dress rehearsal. And since then, we've had other dress rehearsals elsewhere, of course. But it was a uh, basically to, you know, I can go on and go into a great level of detail. But the gist of the story is that Russia used uh, a frozen conflict that it helped to create uh, in order to have an excuse to roll into Georgia, to roll its tanks into Georgia and try to overthrow the Georgian government. They didn't manage to do it at the time because there was a very, uh, because I, I, I think, you know, for various reasons, I think Putin was still testing the waters. I think the response from the United States was actually quite um forceful and um, he got scared. Um, so they didn't come all the way to the capital to Belize. Um, but, you know, since then, but ultimately, and, and that, that was kind of why getting away with it when the new administration came to power just a few months later, you know, came as uh, such a blow to, to Georgia itself. So, but yeah, but, but basically what happened in Georgia was very similar to what we're seeing now, what we saw in 2014 in Ukraine, when Russia manages to masterfully manipulate, um, you know, the existing discontent and an existing tensions in places in order to um, create um, a, a, a very kind of small scale conflict that it then says it has to come in and to resolve. I mean, that's kind of the model that they've used. I mean, there is nothing. It's not that sophisticated what they do at all you know they they've done this in other places they've done this in um, armenia and azerbaijan with nagorno karabakh they've done it with uh, moldova with their frozen conflict you know it's a it's an ethnic minority or it's a russian speaking minority they give uh, this minority passports they make sure the tensions uh you know remain kind of simmering and on the ground, and then they use it as an excuse to come in. Um, the playbook is always the same. The scale of what's happening now is obviously something that we haven't seen since the Second World War. I suppose the biggest um, example of that playbook in terms of proximity and um, geographically and in terms of time, I guess, was also Crimea, right? You have this same kind of playbook um, with these, you know, almost... Um, and intentionally and quite successfully ridiculous lies and, and, and narratives around it that then allow for an invasion that people, a lot of people, certainly, uh, you know, in, in Western Europe and, and in the US essentially just kind of ignore, you know, it, it simmers for a while and then people just are privileged enough to be able to forget about it. Um, 
you know, do you, I mean, it's kind of ridiculous to think of how things could have been different because we're, we're in the situation that we're in. But it seems to me, uh, obviously, you know, an infinite, infinitely more about this, that that was really the time where something could have happened. There could have been some kind of intervention. Absolutely, there could have been. Uh, there could have been just different messaging. There could have been sanctions then. There should have been sanctions then. There should have been there should have been a clear message to Putin that what he was doing is just not okay and the world is not going to stand by and watch him do it. Um, he, uh, Crimea was, you know, I was there at the time, I was reporting on it and it was an incredible, uh, you know, I saw having seen the, the Russian troops in Georgia in 2008 and their sort of, you know, um, boots dirty and their old uniforms and their tanks were rusty and it felt like six years on in Crimea it was just a different army a different force you know but it's kind of looking like special forces American looking more like American special forces out of sort of some Hollywood movie and of course with that insignia and that was you know such a sign that Putin has grown especially on the back of his 2014 Olympic success in Sochi he has grown so much bolder and so much more he was so much more audacious and there he is he sent in troops into into Crimea and um, you know he told the world that those troops were not Russian and it's really interesting to me how to to some you know to some degree uh, we the representatives of Western media, were accomplices almost in that lie that he imposed on us. You know, we were there repeating what he was saying. Uh, we fell into that trap of that doubt that he was trying to create by saying, no, these are not Russian troops. They're little green men. And then you saw all these journalists, you know, uh, repeating basically what he was saying, because that's what we do. But that then it created that space for uh, doubt and um you know, what about tree that took over uh, the debate about Russia in the West? And what we um, what got lost in that debate is that, uh, you know, these were serious violations that had to be addressed then straight away. So, yeah, it was another missed opportunity along with many. I mean, Syria was a missed opportunity. Georgia was a missed opportunity. The war in Ukraine, in eastern Ukraine, uh, the shooting down of MH17, you know, who suffered from that? Who paid the price for it? Um, Russian oligarchs continued using London and getting richer and making their way into the um, into the Western elites. You know, they got the Russian, they, they got the European um, MEPs to visit visit Crimea and sort of unofficially. Um, uh, you know, accept it. And mm, the Western politicians and influencers continued serving on boards of Russian companies. Nothing changed. Um, it was you know, all of all of the things that changed now. You know, Germany carried on with the Nord Stream. Everything carried on uh, business as usual, which is why we have the situation that we have today. One of the things I think people find extraordinarily difficult to overcome is this vast propaganda network, both externally and internally, from um, information warfare that has been ongoing for years and years. And we know various consequences of that, uh, including uh, Brexit and so on. Um, and also the internal media within Russia and people seem to have this kind of uh, idea, although pe people are protesting in pockets like, you know, the people are so manipulated in terms of the information that they may believe what all the state media and state controlled media is saying and so on from your interactions with um, Russian uh, fighters, soldiers uh, in, in Ukraine, back when you were reporting on that um, invasion, was that the case? Was, was it the case that people, people were just kind of on a different planet in terms of reality of what they were doing? You know, being in in Eastern Ukraine in 2014 was extraordinary in terms of just witnessing a, a real war slide from television screens into into reality. Uh, I remember in the early stages of that war, 
it felt a little bit like when you were a reporter for, for the BBC or any, you know, big media organization, they send you on these hostile environment trainings and you kind of run around woods of rural England and you get, you know, abducted by, uh, you know, the, the trainees and they put you through this training and they always use this you know, actors who play kind of drunken guys at the checkpoints, checking your documents, and it's all a bit fake and just a little bit scary to make you think about what the conflict will be like. I mean, that is what the conflict in Ukraine felt like for the first year of the war. It felt fake because it was, but but if you, so if you were there, you know, yes, there were checkpoints and there were people demonstrating here and there uh, outside of administrative buildings, but there were also, you know, the, the mood overall was, you know, overwhelmingly pro-Ukrainian, but the Russian television kept sending a very clear message. And the message on Russian television was that the war was happening outside and that there and it was a completely you know that sense of the total parallel reality i mean you would literally sit in donetsk in a hotel room and you would turn on russian tv and they would be showing bombardment of um kind of a part of donetsk and you were there and you know that it's not happening and then it took only a few months for that reality of the russian television to become the reality of of life in eastern ukraine and that um transformation of this of this war from from this kind of a faked forced conf- conflict into a real you know real violence with real victims uh was uh, was just mind-boggling to see and i think for a long time we were confused about how to cover it like how to cover that disinformation aspect of it so, um, but that, that's sort of to answer the question, you know, that was when we really realized that, yes, that Russian propaganda that we so often dismissed as completely crazy actually was working. You know, Russians, mm, Russian uh, sort of disinformation machine, propaganda machine is very good at targeting audiences. They're very effective at, you know, identifying the fears and discontents of certain groups and then tapping into them and piling on, you know, in the, in the, uh, in the West, for example, they really manipulated a completely legitimate debate about the disaster that was the Iraq war. Um, and, you know, they turned it into this sort of, you know, exhausting whataboutry. And by doing that, Putin really became that hero of the far left. And, and, you know, he could then, and we, we're seeing this now, the anti-war coalition is still, it's not, it's not Putin that they're focusing on. It's the, you know, it's NATO. I mean, it's mind boggling. Uh, at home, they pick different targets. So they, they pick different fears. So for example, you know, the Second World War is a big thing for Russians. So for the last 20 years, Russians have been force-fed narratives about the West trying to take away the Second World War victory. I mean, if you lived in Russia in 2015, 2016, you would turn on TV and you would think that the Second World War is happening now because all the documentaries, films, uh, endless talk shows, they were all dedicated to the Second World War. Another big front line in this propaganda war was LGBTQ, you know, that rel- that Putin's narrative that uh, the West was trying to impose gay marriage on Russia was something that just resonated with, uh, you know, more traditional parts of the Russian society. And it was incredibly hateful campaign um, that used um, the LGBTQ community to basically uh, promote the hatred for the West and especially the United States, but Europe as well. And it worked. I mean, the amazing thing is that it worked. And I would meet with pro-Russian or Russian fighters in in Ukraine and they would say to me, yeah, we're fighting here because... um, uh, because uh, Europeans will come and impose, make they will make me marry a man. Like, I don't want to marry a man. Like, I don't want to become gay. So that's why I've taken up arms. I mean, you know, it's it, the absurdity of it is hard to comprehend, but it's the absurdity that has been driving this conflict uh, 
for for so long and now we're all stuck with it how frustrating um is it for yourself who who you're from georgia you've covered um these conflicts to now see the world essentially go oh shit this has gone too far i mean it makes me you know really question what i do myself and like why were we so bad at trying to explain the stakes that were in place um, with this story. And because, you know, we, I mean, as a journalist, but especially as a Georgian, I remember, you know, and being in Ukraine and um, so many soldiers uh, fighting on the Ukrainian side would say, well, we're defending Europe. And for me as a Georgian, it was very, always very clear that this war was very much a war about liberal values and European values and, you know, Timothy Garth Nash at some panel that I was I was on the other day. He said, you know, we, in the West we tend to forget that, that uh, liberal values at the at the heart of liberal values is freedom. Like you have to be free in order to be able to you know practice them. And uh, you know that my part of the world is the part of the world that understands kind of the value of freedom. So uh, yeah, like I I think I'm a bit of a failure. And I think, you know, the media is has failed to uh, break through the complacency of the West um, that has ultimately led to the situation that we're in now. Um, so, yes, it, I mean, there's been a little bit of like soul searching. It's like, what could I have done differently? What could we have done differently to kind of capture imagination of people um, who are now coming out in their thousands in the streets of Berlin and London and Paris and so on. But it's too late. <laughs> now it's too late. And, you know, um, and then there's also fear that it's not going to be enough uh, because, you know, they may be, I was at a you know, dinner um, in London and everyone suddenly, Slava Ukraine. And, you know, it's it's going to be kind of a line that people cheer with. And it's great to, you know, display the yellow and blue flags and say we stand with Ukraine. But is it going to make a difference? Like, will it make a difference? Not to the lives of millions of Ukrainians whose cities are being encircled by the Russian troops as we speak. And yes, Putin is cornered, but cornered Putin is a million times more dangerous than you know, Putin just two weeks ago, uh, because we know what he's capable of. He's done it. He's done it in Grozny. He's done it in Aleppo. And he's doing it now in Kharkiv and in Kiev. I'd like to push back on something that you said there around how media, your your characterization of it, that it failed to properly demonstrate the, the stakes. I mean, the failure was the complacency not what journalists like yourself were, were doing. Do you know what I mean? I mean, there's only so loud, so you can only shout so loud and demonstrate so much and do so much reporting. The complacency is very clearly on people who just thought, well, this, you know, I don't know what they were thinking, but this will just pootle along and, and nothing will happen because there's also been a broader narrative around uh, the idea that Putin was always going to try and get this quote unquote empire back. You know that, that and, and it was that was repeated so often that it lost its impact. You know, I'm kind of reminded of the the Brecht quote. You know, as the as the crimes pile up, they become invisible. You know, um, right. and, and and that seems to be very much the case. Reading your piece, your point of of view is, you know, it it is too late for people um, who 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 are 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 dealing with the horror of this war right now. You mention um, a soldier that you that you met in Ukraine. Uh, called Dima, who who asked you, what will it take for people to wake up? Um, and and he was killed a year after you you interviewed him, um, fighting for these you know so called European liberal values in, in the east of Ukraine. The the one of this these kind of academic abstract um, debates that's occurring right now around NATO's involvement, around no fly zones, around that even no matter how bad things get, you know there can't possibly be a situation where NATO forces whatever countries they're made up of could be shooting down Russian jets or things like that because that would be even more chaotic. Um, it, it seems to me that 
you know, nobody wants war, you know, nobody wants fighting. And yet there is a different level of reticence dropping in with regards to what happens now in the heat of the moment. Um, And is it the case that NATO, for example, will allow effectively Ukraine to become occupied, to be devastated and see what happens then? I mean, is that not just another another part of a broader piece of appeasement? Yeah, I think uh, I think it's very possible that that's what is going to be. And of course, it will mean also the end of sovereignty of um, some of other Russia's neighboring states, including Georgia, Moldova, you know, Armenia, who's already under Russian, pretty much under Russian control anyway. But it will, you know, but, but Georgia and Moldova are two countries that are very much kind of uh, very much NATO's allies and partners and have pro-Western aspirations, but are not part of NATO. So I think they will fall before um, before the war moves further westward. Um, but, you know, I mean, partially the, the, the debate within Europe about it is also heating up, I think. Um, and, I, you know, partially I want to answer the question by quoting from a piece that was just written by the president of Lithuania, and it's uh, it's a sh- very short letter, and it's called Cowardly West or Accomplices to Putin's War Crimes. And at the end, I won't read the whole thing. She says, Ukraine is asking for real help while we are watching residential areas blown up down on our TV screens and keep saying that we strongly support Ukraine. I'm ashamed to hear NATO leaders and officials muttering that they cannot get involved in the conflict. But we did it in Syria, Libya, Africa, Yugoslavia, and Afghanistan, didn't we? Today, Ukraine is fighting for the survival of its nation and for the peace of Europe. Are we going to just continue watching an independent state being destroyed? Slava Ukraini, glory be to her heroes, and so far only to her heroes, because there are no others on the horizon. And, you know, this is the message that the president of Lithuania is sending to her counterparts uh, further west in Europe. And this is from a NATO member country. And it just is a really good kind of example of the kind of difficult conversations that are taking place inside NATO. And of course, you know, the Baltic states and Poland and, you know, countries of Eastern Europe, you know, they have a different understanding of of Russia completely because of their history. Uh, And so, yeah, I mean, we don't know what's going to happen next, but I think she's right. I I think if we don't have more heroes, then this is going to end really badly for everyone. I mean, he's threatening with nuclear weapons. So this is not a good situation we're all in. What do you think about this... um kind of leftist uh, whataboutry or, or cycle type thing where people say, well, there wasn't this much empathy shown to people in Syria or this was never, uh, you know, the, the situation with the European Union countries wa- waiving visas, you know, that wasn't the situation with regards to another conflict outside of <clears throat> the, the continent and so on. To me, it feels quite like a nihilistic type of, type of, of cycle that is quite unhelpful while also pointing out the blatant uh, xenophobic or racist hypocrisies and so on. You know, it, it's also quite academic and abstract when there's, you know, an immediate emergency going on. What do you think about that kind of discourse? Look, I think uh, I, I think I agree with everything you just said. I think I think it's appalling uh, because we are seeing these refugees being treated differently from the refugees we've had before. Uh, humans are tribal and we're really showing that we are being very tribal because, you know, these are um, these are people who are much closer to Europe and people whom we are much Europeans can identify with uh, in much easier ways um, than with Syrians or Afghans. I mean, Afghanistan happened only a few months ago. Look at the difference of the way that um, the Afghans were received and and what's happening with the Ukrainians. But as you said, I don't think now is the time um, necessarily. I think these lessons need to be learned and the issue needs to be interrogated. And I think, you know, I, I, uh, look, this, in some ways, this is probably the least of the problems that I have with the kind of the whole like far left debate. Um, 
I mean, there they have more of a point than on some of the other issues, like blame NATO, not Russia. I mean, I find that one just completely um, in- incredibly unconstructive and self-defeating as an argument. Um, but with the refugees, yes. I mean, the reality is that, yes, they are being treated differently. Uh, and um, yeah, we eventually, when this is more controlled or ends, I mean, it's not going to end anytime soon, but we will need to figure out ways how to, um, you know, find basic humanity to treat all war victims the same way. Given your expertise and, and seeing so many patterns as you have over the past um, uh, more decade or so, decade and a half, and how you've identified uh, how Putin has basically created kind of facsimiles of, of, of war projects over and over again until he got to this point. How does the, the next part play out? I mean, as, as kind of grotesque as it is to, to say or ask that from what you've identified in, in your reporting and your uh, observations on the ground elsewhere. You know, I think I'm the wrong person to ask because I did not think that this would happen. Mm. As, uh, you know, as as uh, Washington kept saying, it's coming, it's coming, it's coming. I kept saying, oh, come on, it's not. He's not going to do it the way this way. He will he will he will come into the east and he will take parts of the east, which is bad enough. You know, that shouldn't happen either. But I did not think that this would happen. So uh, at this point, I don't put anything past him. I mean, is he ready to use nuclear weapons, I would like to say, no, that's not going to happen. But I also thought that this wouldn't happen. So I just don't know. Before but what go- I, but so, sorry, but what I, but what I do think is that this is only the beginning. You know, I think this is going to last for a really long time. And I don't think we have seen the worst parts of it yet. Um, I think, uh, I think it's going to get a lot worse. Mm-hmm. Before you go, Natalia, I hope you don't mind me asking. Your your um, husband was in the news uh, recently. He he was um, captured by the, the the Taliban in Afghanistan. Also a journalist, uh, Andrew North. How's he doing? He's doing all right. I'm glad. I'm glad that he's out because now everyone would be too busy to get him out. I think. Well, he's uh, doing all right. Okay, good. Great to hear. Listen, thank you so much for talking to us again. Keep up the fantastic work. You've been doing such brilliant, brilliant stuff. I know it's a very difficult, depressing, horrifying time, but codastory.com is uh, your, 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 the editor in chief there. It is a fantastic resource and has been following Russian disinformation and various aspects of Russian authoritarianism and imperialism for some time. I would encourage people to check that out and take care and we'll talk to you soon. Thank you so much. An eclectic uh, seafaring section this week, Andrea. What's getting in the sea? This week, to the sea shall it go is single sex schools. Obviously, not obviously, there's a lot of problems around uh, boys and girls growing up Uh, very separate from each other and not understanding how each other operates and getting to know each other and othering, which can lead to problems in later life. So there's been a conversation around uh, single sex skills and like how will BlackRock or whatever ever like let girls in, whatever, how will rugby win? Um, (laughs) So um, people who've gone to BlackRock have been like, it's never going to happen. And now we see that actually it has started happening. Um, Ratdown School um, in Glanagiri is to begin admitting boys um, from next year. Uh, the principal, Brian Moore, said the decision to go co-ed was taken to ensure the school reflected modern Ireland and to fulfill its ethos of being an inclusive and progressive school. So I think that is just great news. Not very um, inclusive when you're charging people thousands of euros a year to go to it, though, is it? I mean, it's a fee-paying school, right? It is a fee-paying school, but inclusive of all genders. Mm. It can't be inclusive of everything. Come on. <laughs> it would be ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, interesting, isn't it? Like how that's actually going to change. And I think, you know, it go- goes to show the generational shift in parenting in Ireland as well. 
where a lot of people are like, this is bonkers. I want my kid to be socialized in relation to the actual functioning of normal day to day society. Yeah. yeah. And I just hope loads more educate together schools get set up. And um, and I just think it's so interesting because everyone's issue like, it's just not going to happen. So in that exact voice. <laughs> exactly. So <laughs> in the sea you go, single sex schools. And I look forward to a more harmonious life with the men and women of the future. I would it would be fun to like admit one boy at a time. So it'd be like dairy girls, you know. Um, no, that's a bad idea. Uh, but uh, yeah, go, go, go progressive, obvious, normal, socializing and learning in schools. Mm-hmm. Now it's time for It's Bananas. What's in your bunch of fifes this week, Andrea? Oh, like this is always my, it's, well, it's not always, but like so frustrating when we look at how many people are struggling, how bananas it is out there, how much inflation is taking hold, how energy is going through the roof for various reasons and we're being given 200 euro. And yet the government generated a surprise budget surplus of nearly 1 billion in February on the back of strong income tax and VAT receipts linked to the reopening of the economy and ongoing recovery in employment. Surprise! Oh my God, it's so frustrating. It's like, you're, like your job as a budget is not to make a profit. Your job as a budget is to spend the money like or borrow or provide use money to do what you need to do so that the people in society have a way of living and fuck your gdp and all your gdp squared and whatever those stupid things are and the fact that there's so many people who are really struggling in the country and uh some people go around saying how great we are and how well we're doing in our budget and we're surplusing money now there is like that is for one month and it will be different over uh, the whole year, but it just... Why does the government keep being surprised by tax takes? Like, this is something that keeps happening because it was, it was happen- it's happened with corporate tax uh, taking and it's happened with income tax taking and VAT. Ta- and there's just like... Ha- so many of the companies are made up in it. <laughs> Real. There's 80 companies in this one office. Oh, cool. Surprise. Yeah. That's money for us, Debbie. <laughs> It's just weird. I don't know. Like, do, yeah, it's it has to show some kind of dysfunctionality that you don't actually know how much, how many people are working and what what you're taking in. I don't know because it's not coming from everyone who works here. <laughs> you mean there's no, not fifty million airplanes in Dublin Airport being leased right now? Excuse bananas. Me? <laughs> bananas. Uh, also bananas. Um, <laughs> the so there's a, a protest. Um, in Herberton Road and Drimna because another fucking bill to rent development is meant to be going up there. They're like, piss off. And the thing I find most bananas about this, obviously that's bananas in itself, but the more bananas thing is uh, Dublin City Council, the people who should be responsible for shaping our city, have advised against the development, citing a lack of a master plan. And it just goes on to highlight how little control or power there they have and it's so frustrating how the the like official dumb works and who's actually making decisions and how it's all so cloak and dagger and not the people who you think it should be mm. i saw um some people were joshing with uh, dublin city council over their installation of a massive 5g fucking pole, pole on O'Connell Street being like, we're rolling out, blah, blah, blah. It's like, have you heard of rolling them out on top of buildings? So, we, <laughs> so we're not. Yeah. Have you not seen how many poles there are erected uh, around the city with signs to the M50? How many, pl- how many times do you need to know to go to the M50 from town? I'm on like Clarendon Street. I don't need to know where the M50 is. It's outrageously bananas. Andrea, like- I'm a longtime critic of street clutter. Uh, and uh, none of what anyone says on this subject appears to matter until I heard of pilot uh, projects 
um, in Dublin City that are endeavouring to reduce street clutter on streets. And I think the first one is happening around Blackwell Place and Stony Batter. Like, brilliant. I mean, more room for people to go down on their penny boards and walk their various uh, dog breeds that, you know, gentrifiers have. Um, (laughs) Gentrifiers, as if they're another group. Um, I say this as somebody who lives in Stony Batter, by the way. Um, But it's just like, would you not go out and look with your eyes and see that none of it matches? Like was, I know, I know. <laughs> there was like this picture the other day of a, of all the different bus stops on O'Connell Street right beside each other. They're all different designs. It's like, what is that? Is this like a feast for my eyes of colour? No. Well, yes, it is. But it doesn't like, there's no cohesion. Where's the cohesion? I want a bit of cohesion, a bit of vision, a bit of a plan. That's all I ask. Well, moving on. A lot of bananas. <laughs> now it's time for our fave bits. Now you were, uh, there was a desert of uh, fave bits uh, in your department last week, Andrea, but now you have a veritable oasis of fave bits. I wouldn't say oasis, but some bits are coming back. I'm leaning into, leaning into culture. I don't know where my fave bits have gone to. Like I used to be brimming over. Anyway, my fave bits dot begin with um, a film in that premiered on Monday in the Dublin International Film Festival. Um, it was uh, Sean Dunn and Anna Rogers' How to Tell a Secret. Um, and it was about how to disclose uh, your, not how to disclose your status. It was a story about disclosing your HIV status. And it uh, talked, it focused on Robbie Lawler and uh, Pod Fave. Veda, drag queen, um, Enda, and a few, and those other people in it as well. But it was it was just uh, a really interesting take on um, living with HIV and um, how the disclosure is off. How you how it can empower more people to to disclose um, should they wish. We're. It's a beautiful film and it's a mixture of like theater documentary and documentary coming together. So it's an interesting way of doing it. It was really good. Standing ovation. Um, not sure where you'll be able to see it, but I'd say it will be coming to a screen near you soon. Uh, my other fave bit is Chestnut Bazaar. This is a space on Clambrazel Street. So it's a bit of a waste space. Um, that a group of pals have just decided to take over, repurpose and make use of. So they have loads of food trucks in there. They have a sauna. They set up movie nights um, and just showing what can be done in spaces um, for very little money. uh, When there's a will, there's a way. And it's just a a, a nice place to hang out. Love it. Yeah, brilliant. Uh, Next up, Centrepoint Fundraiser. and a, a gig this weekend um, and they are raising funds for Scoop Foundation and Red Cross Ukraine and Scoop Foundation are actually going across to help out Calvin James who has gone uh, to many different uh, war sites and war zones and uh, brought ambulances with him and uh, just really been uh, hands on the ground and so that fundraiser is this weekend and then another fundraiser this time for homelessness um is Artists Against Homelessness at the Olympia, curated by Kojak um, for Folks Ireland. You've got Damo Dempsey at that and uh, Shiv and a few others. So people are people are making shit happen, even when they are restrained in what they can do. Mm, love that. Um, so my fave bits are Raising Films Ireland has launched. Uh, Raising Films is um, basically a kind of network of people and a group who do loads of different kind of support and uh, research projects and all that kind of stuff um, to make the film and film industry and uh, more inclusive and accessible for parents and carers. Uh, it's a not-for-profit organization and the Irish part of that has launched. So if you work in the film industry or a television industry, and you're a parent or a carer and you face loads of issues that people who aren't parents or carers 
they don't face basically RaisingFilmsIreland.com I went to the launch of that on Wednesday a really interesting conversation with aforementioned Anna Rogers actually um, Andrea and Lenny Abenson and a bunch of other people and uh, yeah I always just feel like you know, as somebody who kind of straddles both of those industries, or not both those, the film and TV land and journalism land, like the level at which the film and television industry has its shit together in terms of support networks, in terms of tackling um, inequity, in terms of, you know, uh, funding strands for women makers and all that kind of stuff is just so streets ahead of um, media in terms of journalism. So it's always really great to see more stuff happening even uh, in the Irish film and television industry, which is on fire at the moment. Um, I haven't watched this yet, but it was recommended to me by a trusted source. Uh, Somebody somewhere... (laughs) That'll be your favourite. (laughs) It is. Something that I've heard is good. No, but I'm going to watch it. But Somebody Somewhere is the name of it. It's a show on, I think it's on uh, Sky Comedy and HBO. But Bridget Everett is in it and I love her. Um, People may know her from, she was in Inside Amy Schumer and Patty Cakes, amazing comedian, cabaret performer. Uh, So I'm excited to watch that. And my oh my festivals every minute there's a new festival um and it's so brilliant to see and just a few of them uh, that have popped up in the last couple of days body and soul is going to be back and it's keeping its cards close to its chest it's doing things differently this year it's going to be smaller and it the lineup is going to be held back so it's really about engaging with the vibe of the festival and immersing yourself in that kind of beautiful um you know, just like art, party, glitter, vibes uh, in Ballon Lock. Um, not for me. Not for you. <laughs> <laughs> no. You, you hate you hate art and vibes. <laughs> um, so, yeah, great to see Body and Soul back. The Great Gathering is on the 10th and 12th of June. It's like chat and food and loads of journalists and stuff. I'm talking about something at it. Uh, that's in Rusborough House. Yeah, that's camping. Who is the audience for this? I've been trying to figure out. The Great Gathering one? Mm. Is it camping? I don't know. I I mean, I figure like people love chat. People love live podcasts. People Mm. love food. And you've got like Ottolenghi and Fintan O'Toole and Emma DeBerry and Blind Boy and stuff like that. I think there's... um, I do know Lally. Yes. (laughs) For... uh, I'm sorry in advance. No, but uh, yeah, I think there is an audience for uh, like any talky type event. No, um, but like you would think that it would be like a more, I don't mean like a well-to-do crowd who don't really like camping. Um, anyway, I don't know. The oh, you targeted can, audience yeah. of the festival at another date. You can call, call the organizers <laughs> and, and go through your thoughts on that, Andrea. Um, on the, the same weekend, uh, as that also in Wicklow, which is really the festival capital of Ireland uh, this summer. Actually, I think I was ahead of the curve when I was living there for two years. <laughs> well done, Wicklow. Nature is there. Um, Beyond the Pale uh, looks deadly. That's at Glendalock Estate, 10th, 12th of June. Um, the lineup includes Bonobo, Fortet, Orbital, Lisa Hannigan, um, loads of stuff. John Francis Flynn, and the art part of it is curated by Jenny Jennings. This is Pop Baby. And there's like a big romance bar area. And basically someone just inside my head making a festival, <laughs> effectively. <laughs> so well done to the people who did that. Um, but it's just deadly to see all these little, like little ones and big ones and familiar ones and new ones all Correct. come uh, back or begin uh, I'm super excited for all of that. It'll be so great to see the equivalent of that with clubs opening up. Correct. Any minute now. Um, and finally, my final, final fave bit is, you're going to like this, Andrea. It's a podcast called Calling Bullshit. Okay. And it basically is about exposing purpose washing 
in corporate uh, oh, land. So as you, your, your most hated thing, of course, is like a company that like sells beer or something, but actually they're like, we want to advocate for human rights. You know, it's like, no, you don't. Or, you know, <laughs> we're trying to connect everyone in the universe. It's like Facebook, you're selling ads. Um, so yeah, the podcast called Calling Bullshit, um, they've got a two-parter on Facebook actually called, Hey Facebook, what's that smell? Um, and they've got one on Jewel, the vaping brand. Um, and they're just basically calling out all of this absolute guff that companies get away with where they're like, we want to elevate the world's consciousness. It's like, it's an office share. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. I wait, like, I love when brands give you a brief of what, who they want to connect with. And you're like, this is a different language. What are you talking about? You just want lads to like buy your product. Can you not just say that? We're going to position ourselves. Oh, anyway, it's so funny. And I also want to shout out as a fave bit this Saturday, 5th of March, if you're in Dublin and if you're not uh, attentively uh, attending our live podcast in London. Um, delicious. Uh, is a club night that is happening in the Grand Social in Dublin um, by a Ukrainian LGBTQ. It's a Ukrainian LGBTQ plus fundraiser in association with Kiev, Kiev Pride, um, and all the proceeds are going directly to help various uh, charities uh, related to LGBT rights in Ukraine. And it is like going to be a big whopper, deadly house night. Seven, seven or ten euros for a ticket eventbrite.ie it's called Delicious and it's on at the Grand Social this Saturday in Dublin enjoy now no book this week on book of the week um, I just simply haven't had time to read <laughs> Jesus <laughs> um, but what I am going to do is recommend a doc uh, Winter on Fire Ukraine's Fight for Freedom is on Netflix right now it's a documentary uh, that was made I guess in around 2013 2014 it was released 2015 and it was about protests that were happening in Ukraine at the time and gives a good context, good explainer for how we've got to where we are right now and hopefully we'll be out of quite soon. Um, but yeah, so watch that. Uh, this podcast is produced by Andrew Mangan of Costway Media. Crystal Clear gave us his tuna chicken roll for our soundtrack. You sound so reticent. I never usually say that bit. Sarah Fox did all of our design. <laughs> What's the tuna yeah. chicken roll this week? Oh, what a banger. And like, I see this in words. I'm like, yeah, fine. And then I press play and the first few little beats come on. I'm like, oh my God, you're insanely delicious. Erasure, respect. I've been Una Malali. I've been Andrew Horan. This has been United Ireland. And that was, how Putin got this far. I try to discover.